welcome to episode 241 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman, an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. Today, we are speaking about the future of the automotive industry, and we're talking with three people who are truly in a position to know. So stick around for a great, great discussion. As we talk, there is a tweet chat that is going on right now using the hashtag CXOTalk. And before I introduce our three amazing guests, I want to say thank you to Livestream for being our awesome streaming partner. And if you go to livestream.com slash CXOTalk, they will give you a discount. So our three guests today are Paul Bellew, who is the Chief Data and Analytics Officer at the Ford Motor Company, Evangelo Samudis, who is a venture capitalist and who recently published a book on the automotive industry, and David Bray, who just left the Federal Communications Commission as CIO and is joining the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency as Chief Venture Officers. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. And uh, let's start with Paul. And Paul, please briefly introduce yourself and tell us what do you do at Ford? Well, Michael, thank you for the invite. Glad to be here. I'm the Global Chief Data and Analytics Officer for Ford, as you mentioned. We're the group that's responsible for everything for the enterprise, our data activities, data strategy, data management, data acquisition, but also all of our analytic activities that go throughout the entire enterprise, including new activities in the mobility space. Uh, so we have the privilege of supporting the entire enterprise as we try to understand our customers, as we try to build better vehicles, and as we try to do all those wonderful things that are out there in the future. And so if we want to have a conversation about data in the automotive industry, you're absolutely the right guy to be talking with. Well, I hope so. <laughs> Uh, our next guest is Evangelos Samudis, who is a VC and just wrote a book. Hey, Evangelos, how are you? Well, good morning, Michael. Um, thank you for the, the invitation. Uh, indeed, uh, I've been uh, in the venture industry for uh, going on 20 years now uh, here in Silicon Valley. Um, and um, I'm a co-founder and managing director of Synapse Partners. Uh, we invest uh, exclusively on startups that develop uh, big data applications and focusing on uh, mobility and the transportation industry, uh, the telecommunications and the financial services industries. Uh, and as you said, I recently published a book called The Big Data Opportunity in Our Driverless Future. And I have to say that your book is outstanding. And so, and it really helped me prepare. And so I recommend everybody take a look and uh, just say the name again, Evangelos. It's called the big data opportunity in our driverless future. The big data opportunity in our driverless future. And our third guest is David Bray, who's actually been on this show quite a number of times. And David, you, uh, you have a new new role that you're going into. Welcome back to CXO Talk. Yes. Thank you, Michael. Uh, great to be here. And I really appreciate the opportunity to join both Paul and Evangelos to talk about uh, automated cars and autonomous vehicles. Uh, the role that I'm taking is called the Chief Ventures Officer. It's a new role. It's actually the first role of its type ever for the U.S. government. And it's recognizing that at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, uh, we need to make the shift from mapping the world 
to mapping and modeling the world so that we can actually start to make predictions. And that's only possible if we bring some sort of automation and machine learning to what we do. Uh, we're, we're grounding in data, just to give you a sense. Uh, just one collector right now per day collects the equivalent of three years of all the NFL football games. So you can imagine if you sit a human analyst and say, watch every day three years of football games and write a report on it, uh, that's just not possible. So we're going to have to do automation. We're going to have to do some sort of autonomous machine learning approach to make sense of all the geospatial data in the world. And so that's why this is really great to have this conversation. The other thing I'll say is separate from starting a new job, uh, as of uh, just a week ago, I am now the uh, proud father of a newborn baby boy. Oh, well, congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. So to begin, where should, how, do you, how does one begin talking about the automotive industry and the future? And why don't we start by asking evangelists to give us a sense of what are the forces that are shaping the automotive industry? And I, and I ask you, evangelists, to start because literally you just wrote the book on the subject. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, so for... For me, the, um, I, I have in the automotive industry and by extension energy and, and uh, is, a, is a very complex uh, industry. Uh, and in, in my book, I started thinking about what is shaping next generation mobility, as I call it. And uh, I would say there are um, four or five trends that I see, four or five challenges that I see uh, First is the uh, challenge of urbanization. We have more and more people uh, moving to uh, large cities and particularly mega cities, you know, cities with over 10 million uh, in population. Um, that is uh, putting a lot of uh, strain to the uh, both the overall infra city infrastructure and particularly the transportation infrastructure. Um, we have, uh, as a result of that, we have uh, issues and challenges with congestion uh, in many, many areas around the world. Uh, we are spending too much time commuting uh, to and from work or where we need to go. And, and when we get there, we tend to be kind of like exhausted and not productive. Uh, there are many cities around the world. There are many areas where you can see uh, multi-hour commute times. Uh, next, we have uh, the notion of the challenge of pollution. Uh, again, we, we've started seeing that in Asia, uh, but more recently, even Europe uh, is starting to face uh, these, these challenges. Um, next is the kind of aging population, uh, in particularly in developed economies. Uh, the, these populations are starting to have special, special needs, and transportation is a, is a a very big component uh, of those needs. And uh, finally, um, the uh, various socioeconomic problems that are starting to arise around the world and which several of them gave rise to uh, the sharing uh, economy. So as a, in response to those challenges, uh, I see like a, a shift that is starting to, to happen uh, from, from car from a, like a car ownership centric model to a, to a model that combines car ownership uh, with on-demand mobility. And that's, that's what's starting to now shape next generation uh, mobility. 
and uh, as part uh, as part of that, um, uh, autonomous uh, autonomous vehicles, both uh, vehicles with uh, internal combustion engines, but more importantly, autonomous connected electrified vehicles, uh, are starting to to be viewed as as a, an important component for addressing some of these uh, challenges in next generation mobility. So, Paul and uh, <clears throat> Paul and David. It seems like Evangelist, Evangelist just described a set of cultural, societal, emotional, and technological forces that are, can we, can we say, pressing on the auto industry or driving disruption or forcing change? Would that be an accurate way of, of thinking about it? We think of it, Michael, and get our arms around where this is going to the best of our ability because you're trying to forecast the future. We see the challenges on one end, which were just laid out, whether it's congestion, the need to enable mobility in areas that don't have the economic buying power in developing markets, uh, certainly the challenges from an environmental standpoint that we've been focused on solving for decades. But then we also see the other side, and that's the enablers. The fact that technology is now enabling things that we could only dream of a decade or so ago. It's really the combination of those factors coming together that make this such a wonderful and and crazy time to be in the auto industry. Uh, I would point out that there are other things we have to take into account, which is why we're focusing on a multifaceted strategy to try to seize those opportunities, because we also still have the ongoing love affair with my vehicle especially in developed markets and especially in cultures like the U.S. So that personal use component is there. And then you got to reconcile that with the factors that were just laid out. And then what technology means going forward to enable where we're going, not only today, but five years from now. So for us, what we're focused on is doing what we've always done, and that is enabling people to be mobile. That's a key part of the mission that we started with 114 years ago. And now we're just looking at it in terms of maybe a more diverse way of helping people be mobile and meeting other issues and and challenges that we face as a society. So it's an incredibly exciting time uh, with lots of dynamic properties playing out for sure. And to build on what Paula is saying, I I think it's great that we started off by framing this as it's a combination of both what society needs and what society wants. So it's not just about the technology. In fact, if anything, the technology is 20% of this. It's the other 80% in terms of how people are living in cities, how people are living in rural areas and maybe want to commute to cities or work commute to work. And then it's also just a recognition that um, separate from all the technology, there's just so many demands to our day. I mean, we are now connected more than ever. That's a good thing. The bad news is we are drowning in the amount of email, tweets, chats, and everything like that as well. So it may very well be that the younger generation, Gen Y and Gen Z, would prefer to have the car be as autonomous as possible so they can use their ride to work or ride wherever they're going to catch up on other things like connecting with friends and connecting with work and getting work done, as opposed to what used to be in the past, which was driving was a sign of freedom in some respects, and it was actually more cherished. I mean, I personally would love to sit in a car, take my 30-minute commute to work, and actually be productive while I'm doing it as opposed to having to be focusing on the wheel and having to be focused on the way there. So it's amazing how this is really a combination of human plus technology and that it's not changing incrementally. I mean, this is all changing exponentially, both in terms of what the technology and the sensors can do, but also the amount of data that's being collected and being produced from these vehicles. 
Earlier, earlier in the week, uh, I was in New York uh, participating in a, in a panel that uh, Reuters organized on, the, on this very topic. And um, uh, what was interesting to hear, uh, to talking both with some of the other participants and the, uh, some of the other panelists, as well as the, the audience, is that uh, the, the overall transportation experience and the, um, the, the, the notion of productivity, gaining on productivity, um, uh, figured very prominently in uh, the thinking of, of next generation uh, mobility. Now, some of this, I, was, I will admit, is like self-selection. The, the participants in the audience, very much like us, they, they tend to, to have a, a lifestyle that you know, require, requires uh, you know, productivity at different times of the day and all that. Um, but uh, it, it is uh, it, it figures very very prominently in in the in, in what drives the the design thinking for uh, for that for, for what's next. I want to just remind everybody listening that right now we there's a tweet chat going on using hashtag CXO Talk, and we're we're speaking with three experts on the automotive industry and the future and. Ask them questions because you have a rare, rare opportunity. And we have a question from Twitter already, and this is directed towards Paul. And this is Scott. Scott Weitzman is asking, how is Ford adding technology without distracting drivers? And is there a large push within for autonomous vehicles? And I find that an interesting question because it starts to intersect the technology with the human factors and the social dimensions that we were talking about earlier. So Paul Bellew, what do you think? It's a very good way of thinking of it, Michael. And and that's really for us how all these things intersect to provide greater value, greater benefit to society as well as to the individual. And as we look at this, we have a lot of work underway in terms of distracted drivers and the activities to make sure that we're ensuring that we're driving safely going forward. And then, of course, the intersection of potentially some level of autonomy in a vehicle then converges with perhaps that benefit along with other benefits that we're seeking. And that's why no matter how we look at this, the strategy going forward is to continue to progress down these roads, whether it's some form of mobility solution that's convenient and provides the benefit to the customer, whether it's where we're going with autonomous vehicles, whether we're going in other directions because if you can intersect that effectively, you start helping the individual, you provide benefits to the societal element of this as well, and you take out some negative consequences that are occurring at the same time. And so it's, it's a great question because that's the way we think of it each and every day. And we think of this as potentially a seminal moment in the history of the industry, which by the way, in its own foundations is a complex industry. And now you add this all together with more layers of complexity, but you're doing it and embracing it in a way, at least we're embracing it at Ford, as offering all these possibilities. Uh, so we see it as more of a positive in that conversation around distracted drivers or other sorts of topics or some of those related or adjacent potential benefits that we could derive with, depending on where the, we end up landing, but certainly where we're going, we're looking at those factors as certainly being an element to take into account. And since we're talking, uh, Michael, about autonomous autonomous vehicles, and uh, Paul, I'd be interested in your in your opinion on this. 
I view, frankly, the level three autonomy, you know, with regards to the, to the uh, audience's question, level three autonomy as being the, the riskiest of, of these propositions with regards to the technology and the user experience. Because in, in level three, you have enough autonomy to, for, for the customer, for the, for the driver to feel that they can relinquish control but you don't have enough autonomy where, where you need the driver's input in, in, many, uh, in many situations. Whereas in level one and level two, the driver already has a very good understanding that they are in control. In level three, you start uh, relinquishing some of that control. Uh, and, and as I said, it becomes more dangerous because in level four, level five, uh, you're, you know, the, the vehicle will have enough intelligence to be able to, to operate autonomously and eventually uh, w without any any driver. So I think that that's where we have the, that's where the automakers have the, the biggest challenge in terms of creating the right technology, the right safeguards, uh, the right user experience there. And so we've been focused on level four and have been very public about that, consistent with those thoughts as well as other factors is really where we're going and where we're really pushing forward uh, because we believe it's at level four that you start talking about the true viability of the use cases for our autonomy type mobility solutions. And so for us, we have been very public on that and we remain very committed to it for those factors as well as others. And, and certainly as you go down this path, we, we have to take all of those factors into consideration. It's, there's not some magic bullet out there that suddenly transforms the journey we're on. This is a very exciting journey, but it's a very complex journey, and it comes with a high degree of responsibility that goes along with it. So actually, if I can ask a question of Paul, uh, so obviously there's a lot of data being produced uh, as you go to level four. Do you see that being stored and processed more by the car? Is it being collected and stored more by the road or infrastructure or somewhere else? And then given that, uh, what do you see like the possible three years from now, the, the ecosystem looking like in terms of what's being done with the data and being made sense of the data there? So to answer your direct question, I would say yes. <laughs> <laughs> stored by the car, processed by the car, uh, could be within the ecosystem proper. Certainly it will be in some type of central environment as well. But again, what's exciting about the journey we're on is that the technology is enabling us to do things on the data side, which ultimately then allows you to go down the brain development side of autonomy type vehicle or autonomous type vehicles. And that for us is, at least for what I do for a living, is very exciting because it's prompting us to push forward with not only edge analytics, but edge data management. And that is an, a very, very exciting area for us to play in. So I, I think the answer to your question is it's going to be all of those factors together and when we think of something as complex as what we're trying to do here and the massive data and analytic challenges going along with it, you're going to have to have a more diverse ecosystem to enable that. And if you're really going to go beyond autonomy, but have smart vehicles that are interfacing with each other that could have all sorts of other individual and societal, societal benefits, then you also have to make sure the ecosystem is going down that path as well. And that includes smart infrastructure and related activities. So our thought process as, as we've been going through this is to be pretty agnostic, to be pretty humble as the technology is changing from a data and analytics standpoint, and then realize that the ecosystem is not going to be a, a traditional one where miraculously somehow we're just going to hook up every vehicle to some pipe and collect every data element and 
somehow build data centers that are the size of the state of Texas. That's really not the strategy uh, because it's just not feasible. But the good news is the technology is letting us now do other things that offset those concerns. Um, uh, David, um, uh, Michael, if I can uh, add here something. Um, uh, David, to, to, your, to your point, um, as I point in my book, actually, uh, th there's a need both for kind of new frameworks around which to, to think about data. I mean, this, you, you mentioned there's the, the transportation infrastructure data, there's the data from the vehicle, there's the data from the passengers of the vehicle, there's the, there's the data from other vehicles, as well as data providers. I mean, so it's a very complex ecosystem that we are talking about here. I mean, we, we tend to think about the data that is produced by the vehicle, but this goes a lot more, a lot beyond that. Um, we, and and I'm, I'm glad that Paul mentioned the fact that th there is a need for rethinking data management. This is not all about cloud-based storage. Um, even though, you know, telcos with whom I, I work quite extensively, they, they are thinking very, uh, you know, very deeply about that. Um, but you, you need policies on what data to keep in the car, what to, to push outside the car. And the other thing that makes it complex, I mean, as, as this ecosystem is being reshaped, you have to understand that we are not talking about a single cloud. So this is not about Ford's cloud versus, you know, BMW's cloud or, or GM's cloud. This is, um, you know, Ford would have a cloud, but Delphi could also have a cloud, will also have, not could, will also have a cloud and, and weather.com will have a cloud and, and all of those. And so uh, even for the data that is going outside the vehicle to, to this type of an infrastructure, the decisioning that has to take place is is very is very complex, and um, again, what was interesting to me in researching uh, the book is that uh, obviously over the past twenty years, the automotive industry, uh, as the car has become more and more software dependent, has has uh, become aware of the importance of data. There are already quite a few sensors in vehicles today. But the, both the type of data, the complexity of data, the volume of data, like the big data that we're talking about in an environment where we have autonomous and eventually driverless vehicles and, and on-demand mobility is, is so stupendous compared to what we have been used to dealing with today. And, and that's what requires the, the new thinking. We agree. And one of, the, one of the reasons why we brought together an organization to do this was in part to bring that new thinking forward. And certainly it applies to autonomous vehicles, but it also applies to other things that we have underway, such as IAOT. When we start talking about the Internet of Things within an industrial setting in plants, you can't just go down a conventional data management approach and expect to be able to, to manage that, even if you use cloud-based storage versus physical data centers, it's still impractical and it makes absolutely no sense in terms of a sustainable model. So our way of describing it is modern master data management. So traditionally we, we talk about, yes, those core principles and data management are essential, data structure and related activities, but it is a completely unique way of thinking about how you ingest and curate and leverage those data assets to support business objectives and I actually think it's going to be one of the more exciting areas for us in the next five years or so on top of the vehicle and on top of mobility solutions. 
we've got to get that right. And it's once again, one of the reasons why we established the group that I have the privilege of leading a couple of years ago, because we could see that we've got to go beyond the conventional thought processes that, that any company has, not just automotive, and the way we've thought about data management, build a central environment, call it a data lake, put some type of identifiers in, all of those things that go along with it. The world is moving well beyond that. Uh, by the way, for us, we're taking many of the principles of what we're doing on data management with the vehicle and applying it to what we're doing to support our manufacturing organization. So that's pretty cool as well that the people that are responsible for one are sharing the capabilities with other parts of our overall organization. Evangelos, uh, in your book, you describe all of this as the automobile or the, the car, the device, the mobile device, mobility device as a platform. So um, again, uh, over the past, whatever, 20 or so years, I think uh, the automotive industry has been thinking of vehicles as as platforms. Uh, in fact, um, much of the terminology that they have been using, companies including Ford, has been around platforms. I think what is different here um, is that we're we're talking about different type of a different type of platform. It's no longer a, a platform of electromechanical devices with some computing but is a, is a platform of sensors and actuators with immense amount of computing power and uh, quite a bit of storage um, for, to address the issues that we were just, uh, that we were just talking about. So um, some people have um, described it uh, as robots on, on wheels. Uh, I think when you think about um, uh, on-demand uh, mobility and applications such as ride-hailing. Uh, you could think of um, uh, robo-taxis and, and robots on wheels. Uh, if you think about uh, long-haul long tracking, which is another application, um, another projected application for autonomous uh, vehicles. Again, you're um, you're thinking about these these vehicles that um, that are very that are very robotic. But but the idea, what I wanted to communicate is that we have uh, a very different kind of platform um, than we've we've used to to date uh, in in vehicles. It's it's interesting to describe a vehicle as a platform because any of us that have grown up in the industry, when we think of platforms, we think of the physical architecture of a vehicle. There's a small utility platform. There's a mid-car platform. And the evolution of the last few years have been talking about vehicles as a platform for a variety of different ways. And when we describe a platform now, we, we describe it as, as an interface point, uh, an insight generating point, um, or the ability to leverage and connect vehicles together. So that particular word has evolved in a very short period of time in our industry. And now when we describe it as a platform, we actually have to pause a moment. We have to describe what do we mean by platform? Never thought I'd have to put an operational definition around platform in the auto industry because it was one of those things that was just common terminology. David Bray. I I was just going to say, David, David Bray. Uh, We have a couple of questions from... Twitter, where people are wondering about the public policy implications of all of this. And you're the man who works in the government. So what about the public policy implications of all of this? So you want me to answer on behalf of the entire U.S. government? Well, that would be that would be helpful. 
<laughs> but I will first caveat and say I'm not a congressionally appointed commissioner, so I, I can't answer there. But it warmed my heart to hear um, both Paul and Evangelos talking about how there's not going to be a single place where this data is going to be. I think that is a massive change, and it's going to create interesting challenges for public policy. Uh, we know that in Europe, there is a thing called GDPR, which has certain rules as to where the data can be done and what can be done with the data. Uh, also, next year, about the time this summer, a year from now, there's also going to be a rule that if you make an automated decision, you have to be able to explain how you made that automated decision. So that's going to create some interesting challenges on the Europe side. Um, in the U.S., actually, so I was actually just at last week um, with Vint Cerf at a conference. It was a data summit in Ireland. And we were talking about the, 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 the exponential increase in data. In fact, to give you a sense of the scale, data is doubling about every 18 months on the planet. By some estimates, by 2022, we're talking about 96 billion terabytes, which is actually more data than all human eyes see in the course of a year, or twice all the conversations we've ever had as a species will be on the planet. And so this is going to create new challenges, both for where the data is stored, but also how do you make sense of it, what you keep, as Evangelos mentioned. And I think actually we need to actually have, and it's great we were talking about how platform evolves. We may actually need to think about how data as a platform evolves as well. I mean, right now, in most cases, we're storing data on the same platform where we set our privacy permissions and other rules. But what we may need is something much like, uh, we have a friend, mutual friend that you and I have, Michael, at the University of Texas by the name of Phil, who's actually looking at actually what's called side chain technologies in which students own their student records as opposed to the registrar and then they choose who they share it with. So it may very well be in the future, the car or even parts in the car, as well as infrastructure and the passenger are able to choose who they share data with and for how long. Maybe it's only being shared for a day, maybe only for 30 minutes, maybe it's for a longer time period, but this sort of dynamic sharing of data and then where it's being processed and where it's being made sense of, given that you're gonna have limited compute cycles, I think that's a rapid change from right now, the world in, in which we have the Googles, the LinkedIn, the Facebooks of the world, in which data is co-located at the same place as your controls, we may very look in the future where your controls are separate from where the data is, and there's conversations going forth, both with the passenger, but also with an autonomous system as to, I need this data now, or I'm sending this data with you right now because I want to make sure there's not going to be a collision, things such as that. That's a completely new approach to platform even further beyond what we usually think of platforms where it's the data and the application programming interfaces in the same place. David, you're, you're bringing an excellent point um, and uh, this notion of a data half-life. And um, the, what is particularly important about your statement is that um, we will start, we will need to start defining, having rather uh, several definitions of half-life. There might be one definition may be how much, for how long do I keep the data in the vehicle? You know, I collect a lot of data, not all, all everything is, it should be kept forever or for a long period of time. But th there are other notions, such as the one that you just mentioned, that I, the, the half-life may be how long, for how long can I share that data if I decide to, to keep it? So, so this notion of data half-life is, again, is another novelty that uh, in the transportation industry in general, we've never had to think about. And now uh, all of us who are working uh, in, in this industry, we will need to start creating those, this polymorphic definition of uh, half-life, data half-life. 
Yeah, the, data, the data stewardship activities associated with this are just an example of how we're going into this, this next phase of managing all of it. So whether it's data half-life or our storage policies or use cases or all of those things going along with it, it's part of the fun of this journey right now because we are going into areas where I'm not even sure other industries have fully had to deal with all of that complexity because of the nature of our industry has such a profound impact on individuals and on society. And that prompts a real set of, of emphasis for us to make sure that our approach in terms of stewardship and the journey we're on uh, tries to take all of those factors into account, including things like data half-life, but there's a whole other list of issues uh, that we're discussing and trying to get our arms around each and every day. So Michael, real quick, recognizing you've got a question, but I actually want to add one dimension to this. So part of what I'm doing when I'm going over to the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is we believe that we're sitting on top of 40 years of very valuable data about the planet and geospatial. And so what we're looking at is, assuming Congress gives us the approval, we're actually going to set up a public-private partnership where individuals, if you have a neural network or if you have a machine learning algorithm and you want to train your algorithm with our data, and we think it's a win-win for both of us, that it's actually going to help make sense of geospatial information better, we're thinking that the currency of our data is so valuable, you'll actually work with a nonprofit to train your machine against our data. You keep your intellectual property, but it's the idea that it's actually this win-win both for the government because then we get better algorithms to make sense of all this data. And at the same time, U.S. companies can actually train their machines against large, pristine data and benefit. And so I think the same thing to think about for both Paul and Evangelos with the data for cars do we need the equivalent of a place where people can actually practice and teach the machine against that data, see what works and doesn't work, and go from there? So having data for, for training our the systems that will go into these autonomous platforms um, is, is becoming a much bigger deal than uh, we even thought. And in fact, um, Today, one of the investment theses in my firm is identifying startups that do simulations. Because if you think about even the companies that are fielding test vehicles, uh, they can collect very small amounts of data, both because they have very small fleets, but also the amount of data that can be collected physically. Uh, tends to be a relatively small sample of what we will need in order to effectively train these artificially intelligent systems to reliably um, uh, create, provide the autonomy to, to these vehicles. Um, so we, uh, the, and today, I mean, the, the Waymo and Tesla are probably most data but even that is is a very small uh, amount compared to what is to what is needed. So uh, creating these larger collections, whether of of other contributors of that have actual data, or creating simulated data that can be used to effectively train systems. I think will be a very big deal on our journey towards kind of like a driverless future. We have, <clears throat> excuse me, we have only 10 minutes left. So I'm going to ask everybody to keep your comments relatively on the shortish side so we can cover as much ground as we can in our, in our last 10 minutes. And we have a question from Twitter that links back to the earlier discussion 
on the ecosystem. And Paul, you, you mentioned the importance of that ecosystem. And so Sal Rasa is asking, what are the necessary cultural shifts that need to take place to ensure alignment between internal efforts inside Ford, alignment with uh, your partners, and alignment with this goal that you've described earlier regarding the customer experience. So how do you think about changes in the ecosystem going forward as a result of all of the, these data shifts and things that we've been talking about? Well, we think long and hard about this. And if you go from Bill Ford's approach even a decade ago to what we're focusing on today, we look at it in terms of a high degree of humility of working with partners, finding common interests, not trying to build everything internally, find those, those opportunities to collaborate and enable and support. Uh, that's a change not just for Ford, it's a change for most companies to try to do that. But as we go down this journey, it's, it's going to be an ecosystem that's going to advance the cause. You know, one of the things we get often asked is, are we unsettled by the fact that there's others playing in the autonomous vehicle space? And our normal response is, well, we actually like it because we think it'll advance the cause across that ecosystem. And that's a, it's an interesting way of viewing it, but it shows what we've focused on in terms of embracing the opportunities going forward. Uh, and then for us as an industry, the ongoing pivot towards being very customer-centric is at the center of our journey. One of the reasons you set up a data and analytics organization is to have insights about your customers where you can make a difference in their lives. Uh, so it's at the center of our journey, and it's been a lot of fun over the last couple of years. We, um, one of the questions that, that David Bray uh, gave me before we began, as he and I were discussing this, as he was asking about the algorithms and when you have autonomous vehicles with, from different manufacturers, how do you ensure that a car from one manufacturer, from the driver point of view, performs in an expected range if they get into the car from another manufacturer? Yeah, so David wants to talk about homologation, which is a fancy word of trying to get us all you know, I, I firmly believe that at some point in time, you as this evolves, we'll solve those issues. Now, developing an, the algorithms to empower this cognitive machine that we're talking about, what we describe as a VDS system, the brain of a vehicle, uh, there's a lot that goes into that cognition. There's a lot that, that then has to be harmonized with its operating environment. Uh, but I'm pretty confident that we'll sort that out because guess what? We, we as an industry, both with support from the public side, as well as those of us in the private sector, end up driving some commonality of standards and harmonization and so on and so forth. We all drive on the correct side of the road. We all obey, for the most part, traffic signals and devices. Uh, the vehicles all have similar technology associated with them with things like airbags and so on. So I, I'm pretty confident we'll sort that out. And and the good news is we, the, the geeks of the world, which are myself and others, live for these challenges. So, And um, Michael, one, one, one more to, uh, point to make to, to pause again to, to uh, indicate where we are in this journey, because I think it's uh, sometimes, I mean, particularly in certain centers, including Silicon Valley, uh, one would think that in the next couple of years, we will be, it will be possible for all of us to go to, uh, to a dealer or go to an internet site and, and buy a, an autonomous, a fully autonomous vehicle. 
Um, today, there, there's still a lot of technology problems to be solved uh, and, and software, in my opinion, software-related problems, since you mentioned algorithms, are some of the hardest problems to solve in having and reliably fielding these autonomous, fully autonomous vehicles. So uh, I don't think that uh, we will have, um, you know, fully address these problems in the next couple of years, two, three years, as, as some, some people and some manufacturers may have uh, or may believe or may have claimed. So I think on the software side, uh, I will feel much more comfortable uh, in a seven to 10 year journey, if you will, uh, when, again, uh, going to, to David's point, where we will be able to reliably and in a homologized way uh, talk about uh, autonomous vehicles that can coexist with the conventional vehicles because we're not going to anytime soon we're going to replace everything on the road with just autonomous vehicles. So, so the, there's a lot of work to be done to address the software problems. Uh, a lot more work than will be necessary to address uh, the hardware problems. And uh, very, very quickly, because we've only got a few minutes left, uh, Paul Ballou, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Paul, and I should have asked you, you that earlier. Um, what's the time frame for these changes? Yeah, I think the next decade is going to be interesting. We've, we've talked about a level four vehicle uh, being out there in the early parts of the next decade. Um, I think the next five to 10 years is where we'll start to see that, that jump in terms of technology and deployment. There's a lot to do between here and there. Um, by the way, I think when we talk about this, we often just focus on the autonomous vehicle side. There are things already occurring with regards to mobility solutions that are here and now. Uh, and so autonomy, we're talking about the early stages of the next decade to really start seeing the ramp up because of the software challenges and the technological challenges. But there's a lot of other things happening in mobility that are occurring right now in front of our eyes, and that makes it equally as exciting. And, and David, would you care to uh, make a prediction? You're, you're not inside the audio industry, but you're certainly a data guy. I am a data guy. I, I would probably agree with Paul that, that we're looking at the next decade for autonomy to fully mature. But at the same time, there are already advances here now and things coming along the way. Uh, and also just to echo the comments that were said earlier about what do we do about bringing algorithms together? And that's a really hard computer science challenge. I think one of the nuts that we also have to crack is how do we solve interoperability amongst the data? Uh, as one who has participated in human standards groups, they usually have a three to four year time horizon to actually create standards for that. That doesn't really strike me as a reasonable thing to think about in terms of setting data here. So we're probably gonna need some semi-autonomous mechanisms to make sense of data from different devices, different vehicles, and actually have some interchange amongst that. Because if we rely only on the human condition, we're going to be slowed down by ourselves. Um, but I do think we're going to see advances over the next decade. And I think full-fledged autonomy, probably seven to 10 years, but hopefully we make advances along the way. And Evangelist Samudis, you, in fact, as I said before, wrote, wrote the book on the topic. And so in one minute or less, what advice do you have to the automobile industry? That's like, that's like you know, before David was representing the entire U.S. government, and now you can give advice to the entire auto industry uh, in less than a minute. I've just chewed up some of your time, so I apologize for that. 
I was happy to hear Paul uh, making the statement earlier. I think there, there needs to be a, a cultural change to the industry from being uh, in the design and manufacturing business to, to being in the inside generation and transportation solution business, at least terrestrial trans transportation. Um, some companies, in, including Paul's, uh, they, they've already started thinking about that and started going that journey. I mean, uh, the, the, the CEO change at Ford is a very good indication of that, in my opinion. Um, but that, that's going to be the biggest obstacle. I, I don't think it's going to be technology to the degree that we think about today. I think cultural change and, and appreciation of the data uh, and, and the fact that uh, the, the cultural change is both for a different kind of solution and a different kind of collaboration uh, with startups and other, other types of partners in order to make next generation mobility a reality. And again, it's not only about autonomous vehicles. Let's finish it out with, uh, Paul, You giving you the last word. What advice do you have to the car industry, the automotive industry as a whole regarding the transition into this future? You know, I started in this industry in the mid 1980s. And one of the things that I always trust for the industry that we have to do is we have to embrace change and embrace the opportunity that comes before us. We're an industry that's been around for over 100 years. And sometimes it's been hard for the industry to embrace change. And we have to do it in this case. And if we do so, I look at our industry having a very bright future uh, because the ability to get from point A to point B and transform your life is a human desire that has been with us since the dawn of time. And that's the opportunity in front of us. 114 years ago, we put the world on wheels. Our goal is to make the world more mobile going forward. Real quick, Michael, for 10 seconds, I look forward to the day when we can have the Indy 500 be the Indy Robo 500. <laughs> all righty so that that concludes our show and boy that time went quickly i would so much like to thank our three guests today paul Ballou is the chief data and analytics officer for the Ford for ford motor company evangelo samudis is managing director at synapse partners he's a vc and author of a great book on the automotive industry. And Evangelos, tell us again the name of your book. Uh, the Big Data Opportunity in Our Driverless Future. The Big Data Opportunity in Our Driverless Future. And David Bray is the incoming Chief Ventures Officer for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Everybody, thanks for watching. Next week, we have an, another incredible show, Workday, a software, software as a service company, has got four female C-level executives, and they're all going to be here talking with us together. So tune in next Friday and check out cxotalk.com slash episodes for all of our upcoming shows. Thanks so much and have a great day.